Welcome to Commons and Chronicles, the podcast where we talk about all the best creative commons and reusable open game license content. If you need resources for your creative writing, game design, or you just love lore, Commons and Chronicles is for you. Hi everyone, this is Klaatu. In this episode, I want to talk about the fantasy notion of a hollow earth, or alternately, a land forgotten by time. This is a common enough trope now that I think we're all probably pretty familiar with what I mean. But in case you're in doubt, I'm talking about lands that still have dinosaurs in them. That's the easy way to sum it up. It's not always a land that's literally forgotten by time. Sometimes it's something that someone constructed, as in Jurassic Park. Or maybe it is a land forgotten by time, as in King Kong, or Edgar Rice Burroughs' book series, The Land That Time Forgot. Or the book from 1915, Herland, by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, in which a group of men discover an isolated bit of land populated entirely by women who have developed such that they can reproduce asexually and live completely without men in what is more or less a utopia. This one's an interesting book. If you've never read it or heard of it, you should check it out. It's on Gutenberg. I'll put the link in the show notes. But it's an interesting take on what a completely matriarchal society might look like, and, in fact, a complete matriarchal society in which there are only women, so that's that's kind of the extreme matriarchy. But it's worth reading just to get a feel for what a positive, tribal, woman-led society might look like, and how you might model something in your own story or your own D&D game that maybe looks a little bit different than the typical Amazonian society. This is not an Amazonian society, really. I mean, it is an Amazonian society in the sense that the Amazons were legendarily women who lived on their own, but but it's not the, the warrior woman-style society. It's much more a tribal community of, of peace-loving women who happen to coexist without any men. It's definitely worth checking out. This idea, I think, is important for storytellers because it has a certain number of conveniences that get inherited when you adopt it. The first and foremost is that you can let your characters step essentially back in time without actually admitting that time travel is possible within the world. There's no need to discover time travel within the universe of the story. There's no need to justify why, since time travel is possible in this universe, why aren't future beings coming back and dropping by for tea? Or, if time travel exists, why don't the characters just time travel back five minutes before they made that horrible error, and so on. There's no need to jump to another plane of existence. There's no need to fly off into space and discover a new planet. It's just a a little forgotten island somewhere in the middle of the ocean, or it's the previously undiscovered hollow center of the of the planet that harbors a prehistoric world ripe for exploration. And in Dungeons and Dragons, you have the chung- the jungles of Chult, and in the Pathfinder setting of Galarian, you have the Moengi Expanse. There are forbidden jungles that harbor long-lost civilizations, magical treasures, dinosaurs, and far worse, prehistoric horrors. It offers you as a storyteller, and if you're playing a game, then your players, a chance to dip into that 
pulp adventure style setting that at the very least you've seen played out in Indiana Jones movies, if not Edgar Rice Burroughs novels. Now, speaking of Edgar Rice Burroughs, Edgar Rice Burroughs is the author of Tarzan and the Pellucidar series and the Land of the Time Forgot series and many, many more. He happens to be one of my favorite authors of all times. My grandfather had a shed out back that when I got bored during the summer, I would go back and sit in his shed where he had all of the old paperback books that he'd collected throughout his life. And among them were the entire Tarzan series, most of the Pellucidar series, and the Land of That Time Forgot series, and many, many more. I've probably read, if not all, Edgar Rice Burroughs novels than certainly the bulk of them. I'm quite familiar with that as a setting, and it's one that's very close to my heart. And so it was through books like Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar, and Tanar in Pellucidar, and At the Earth's Core, and its sequel, Pellucidar, and The Land That Time Forgot, and The People That Time Forgot, that this convenient idea that there's a whole new world just around the corner as long as you keep walking far enough took root. But it was actually Jules Verne and his book, Journey to the Center of the Earth, that itself inspired Edgar Rice Burroughs to write all of that great material in the first place. So we should first talk about Jules Verne's book, and then we'll talk about Edgar Rice Burroughs' setting. This will almost play out like a D&D adventure. You see, because Jules Verne, in his book, Journey to the Center of the Earth, provides the adventure hook. A singular professor, Lidenbrock, finds an ancient tome called Heinz Kringla, and in this book there is etched a runic message. Professor Lidenbrook and his nephew Axel spend days trying to decipher this message. They manage to transliterate it to Latin, but it turns out that it is written in cipher. So they spend a couple more days trying to crack this cipher, and when they eventually do, they translate it to say this. Descend, bold traveler, into the crater of the Yakul of Snethels, where the shadow of Scartarus lies before the Kalends of July, and you will reach the center of the earth. I have done this, Arne Saknusum. And without going into spoiler territory, I mean the title of the book is Journey to the Center of the Earth, so I, I feel like it's okay to reveal that they do reach the center of the earth at some point, and it turns out to be hollow. And there they find a forest of giant mushrooms. It is it is made of, well, I think petrified trees and, and gigantic mushrooms. In this forest, they come across the remains of a couple of different creatures, including an oversized human skull. Past the forest, they come across a great subterranean sea. They set sail on this sea on a, on a raft that they manage to build, and they encounter an ichthyosaurus and plesiosaurus. They eventually reach the other side, or, or, or some coast uh, along this sea, this underground ocean, and encounter giant insects. And off in the distance, they see a giant humanoid, so about 12 feet tall there, they think, who appears to be shepherding a herd of mastodons. And I say appears to be shepherding because they're not 100% sure that, that it's a human, a proto-human, or, or just an ape that happens to look human. And they're not exactly sure of the relationship between that human and the mastodons. But it appears to be shepherding this herd of mastodons. So Stone Age type stuff is what they is what they witness. And then they find their way eventually back out towards the surface of the earth through a, a different 
tunnel that, that, that they did not descend through. And so ends the story of the journey to the center of the Earth. Again, the book is much more about the journey rather than hanging out in the center of the world for all that long. You get a couple of chapters there, and that's it. So after reading this book by Jules Verne, a writer named Edgar Rice Burroughs, who you will know from Tarzan, certainly, decided that the idea of there being this hidden world, this hidden subterranean world inside of the, the globe, seemed really, really neat. And so he decided to write a book called At the Earth's Core. Now, I'm not speculating about this. Edgar Rice Burroughs credits Jules Verne as the, as the kernel or the source of this idea that there could be an inner world ancient in flavor at the center of the Earth. And so in his book, At the Earth's Core, a man named Perry has invented a... That's Perry with a P. Perry, not Harry. Perry uh, has invented a machine that he calls the Prospector. And they also term... They, they, they use the term the Iron Mole. And it's more or less, if you imagine a tank, like a military tank, but with a corkscrew nose rather than a gun. And so it has this huge corkscrew nose assembly that drills through rocks. And that's what they do. They, they enter the side of a mountain and start drilling down. And they continue going down until they hit the center of the earth. And what they find there is not unlike what they find, what, what the travelers in Jules Verne finds, although a lot more fleshed out. We, we get to spend a lot of time at the Earth's core in this book, and then in the sequel called Pellucidar, we spend even more time, and then there are more books set in Pellucidar from which you could feasibly draw if you're curious about the setting. However, the only two books currently within the public domain are At the Earth's Core and Pellucidar. So that's the only two books that I'm going to be talking about. So first of all, I'll talk about the the humanoids that you find in the world and and the reason i'm going to talk about those initially is because a lot of the other things fall into into context underneath the humanoids who who dominate those things so first of all there are a, t a couple of different classes of humanoids and by classes i mean sort of like um caste system classes so although and biological there there there's biological differences as well but as in many fantasy worlds D dungeons and dragons included the the caste system is defined by uh, largely by biology in other words the ugly creepy lizard people are the bad guys and the beings most like humans are the good guys, and the beings that are kind of in between are something else. So here's what we have in, in Pellucidar. So at the, the Earth's core calls itself Pellucidar, and there is, there's a, a very, very interesting kind of setup here, and we'll get into that. But first we'll just we'll address the humanoids. So there's, there's the Sagoths, S-A-G-O-T-H. They have long arms and long legs, with great toes protruding at right angles from their feet to facilitate their life in the trees. They have long, slender tails, which they use in climbing, just as they use their hands or feet. Some are lighter in build than a gorilla, with arms and legs proportioned more like humans, but they're still covered in shaggy brown hair, and their faces are as brutal as gorillas. They wear a tunic of light cloth reaching to the knees. Beneath this, they wear a loincloth of the same material, and on their feet they wear thick, 
leather of a mammoth creature of the inner world. Their arms and necks are encircled by ornaments of metal, silver mostly, and on their tunics are sewn heads of tiny reptiles in odd and rather artistic designs. So the Sagoths, and I'm not 100% clear whether Sagoths are all lower humans, or whether Sagoths are, are, are w one specific subhuman within the world. The description of Sagoths seems to me like sometimes two different things are being described, and I'm not clear on whether all of these lower humans are Sagoths, or whether Sagoths are the lower humans with a specific job, and then there are other lower humans who are not considered Sagoths. What might that specific job be? Well, the Sagoths are basically the servants of a race called the Mahar. Mahars are great reptiles, about six to eight feet tall, with long, narrow heads and great round eyes. They have beak-like mouths lined with sharp white fangs, and the backs of their huge lizard bodies are serrated into bony ridges from their necks to the end of their long tails. Their feet are equipped with three webbed toes, and from the forefeet, or, or that is their arms, if, if, if we think of them as humans, uh, have membranous wings attached to their bodies, just in front of their hind legs, protruding at 45 degrees uh, toward the rear, ending in sharp points several feet above their bodies. So, uh, apparently, on a technical level, they're Ramphorhynchus of the Middle Olytic Era. I don't know what that means, but that's what they say. So if you are familiar with, with dinosaurs, very familiar, then maybe you know what that is. And if not, maybe you can go to Wikipedia and find out. They do not have a spoken language, the Mahars. And in fact, they don't even have ears or the ability to hear. They use sign language to speak to Sagoths. And then among themselves, they use a sixth sense. It's not telepathy, because they can only communicate when in each other's presence. So in other words, they, they more or less have to have eye, you know, they have to have eyes on the person that they're communicating with. Not exactly, because I, I get the impression that, that if you're just in the same room, they can speak to each other just as, as if two people could if they were in the same room. You don't necessarily have to turn to the person to talk. You can just speak. But apparently there's some, well, well, the, the way that it's described in the book is that, they're, that they leverage the fourth dimension. So they send their thoughts or, or speech, if you will, into this fourth dimension that we cannot hear or see or detect. And then using whatever sixth sense they have, wh whatever that, si that sense would be called, they, they detect that communication and, and that's how they communicate with one another. I think this is a really interesting trade-off. I mean, they are essentially the orcs of this world. I mean, they serve that function. You you could think of them as lizard folk or oversized kobolds, but either way, they're they're the, they're going to be the bad guys, right? In a story, they're they're not the good guys. It's interesting that there's this imposed trade-off where they cannot hear. They don't have the facilities to hear. So stealth checks against these creatures would be trivial, as as long as they don't have eyes on you. You, you they can't hear anything. You can knock over pots and pans, and they'll they'll never hear it. But the trade-off there is that they have this super secret, undetectable method of communicating with one another, and I, I think that's a really fascinating way to to design a an enemy. Now, in practice, in the book, it doesn't actually have that much of an impact. I mean, the main characters aren't really up against the Mahars all that often. That's where the Sagoths come in to play. The Sagoths are the sort of the arms and 
and legs of the Mahars. I mean, the Mahars have their own arms and legs, but they're they're the they're they're the ones out in the field doing all the work. So, in terms of battling a Mahar, it, it's not something that really comes up. On the other hand, they do have a couple of tricks up their sleeves, so to speak. The first one is that they are expert hypnotists. And when I say expert hypnotists, I mean DC 20, 25, 30 level hypnotists. I mean, they are just expert at what they do. Here is a description, and I'm not going to read it all because it frankly gets into a one of the most gruesome scenarios, I think, certainly involving human dismemberment that I've ever read. It's a really, really kind of almost disturbing passage or maybe disturbing passage maybe it's disturbing so here's here's the description of of what of what the mahars get up to with humans the queen fixed her gaze upon a plump young maiden her victim tried to turn away hiding her face in her hands and kneeling behind a woman but the reptile with unblinking eyes stared on with such fix with such fixity that i could have sworn her vision penetrated the woman and the girl's arms to reach at last the very center of her brain. Slowly the reptile's head commenced to move to and fro, but the eyes never ceased to bore toward the frightened girl, and then the victim responded. She turned wide, fear-haunted eyes toward the Mahar queen. Slowly she rose to her feet, and then, as though dragged by some unseen power, she moved as one in a trance straight toward the reptile, her glassy eyes fixed upon those of her captor. To the water's edge she came nor did she even pause, but stepped into the shallows beside the little island. On she moved toward the Mahar, who now slowly retreated, as though leading her victim on. The water rose to the girl's knees, and she still advanced, chained by that clammy eye. Now the water was at her waist, now her armpits. Her fellows upon the island looked on in horror, helpless to avert her doom, in which they saw a forecast of their own. Now what I'm not going to read is the description of how this poor girl hypnotized by this the the mahar queen is eaten alive by the mahar queen bit by bit and she is so hypnotized that she doesn't even realize that she's lost an arm and then another arm and and on and on it's it's bad so that's what they can do they can literally devour you and you don't even know that it's happening you're just you think everything's fine and then you're dead so that's a that's a, a very good dis- a, a good display in that chapter um, of the it's called I think the the temple of the Mahars or something like that and it, it's a great display of what of just how dangerous a Mahar can be now Mahar society is as far as I can tell a matriarchy but I don't think in, in I, I, it's a matriarchy not composed entirely of of women which you might think that's a weird thing because matriarchy doesn't imply that but so here's what happens with maharas so first of all they are lorded over by a queen i that we know for sure and we also know that female maharas reproduce asexually so not it's not really supposed to be asexual but they figured out a way to make it asexual so the female maharas lay eggs because they're reptiles and using a chemical that they have developed by by one of their their one of their greatest scientists developed this chemical which they can use to fertilize the eggs so males don't take part in reproduction now again i i believe that's not saying that there are no males i i believe it simply means that the female mahars do not use males for reproduction i did not get the impression that there were only females though 
So anyway, that's that's how they reproduce, and accordingly, you might draw from this, and it is confirmed in the book, that, that the Mahars are actually a very, very advanced civilization. They are, they are the top of the world of Pellucidar. They are the, they're the civilization that figured it all out. And, and I mean that they, they have science, and they have arts, they have libraries, they have all the things that modern society would be expected to have, and they see humans and humanoids, like the Sagoths and, and, and the, the, the other plain old humans that I'll get to talk to, to talking about pretty soon here, they see them as lower animals, and they don't even understand, arguably, that, that humans can communicate. And certainly, it, they may understand that, that humans communicate, but they don't understand that that's got value. So, you know, I mean, they can't hear humans, for instance. They have no auditory sense. So everything that humans sort of do must make complete, just no sense to them, really. Moving your mouth, making these, you know, pantomimes, and but but not communicating and not not having not having any knowledge of this fourth dimension by which mahars communicate it it obviously gives the the gives them the impression that humans are the lower form of life and again i think that's a really interesting angle to take for your main bad guy because usually the bad guys are very aware that they are the bad guys i'm not saying that's a good thing i'm just saying that usually in fiction the bad guys kind of know or, or often in fiction, uh, the bad guys kind of know that they're the bad guys, right? And and in this, they, they don't know that they're the bad guys and are arguably, I mean, certainly if you hold them by the same standards that we hold our own modern society, they aren't the bad guys. They're the good guys, and they're subjugating the the lower forms of life around them, just like any good good advanced being should, right? So it's, it's an interesting take. And and the Mahars also have great a great sense of honor, as it turns out. For instance, when the main character uh, ends up with a Mahar captive, when he later frees this captive, the captive returns the favor later on, based on, well, you didn't harm me when you had me captive, so I'm going to do you a turn, a good turn. And so it's, it is very difficult to call the Mahars really evil, and then I think that usually, I think most people agree that that often makes the best, the, the best kind of evil character. The other humanoid on the planet, so either three or four, right? Sagoths could be two species or one species, and then the Mahars. And then there's this other kind of humanoid, which for a lack of better a better term, we'll call a human, because that's what they are. They're, they're exactly what we would expect a human to be. I will talk about these humans, these interesting creatures called humans, in the next episode covering Pellucidar. So thank you very much for listening. Hopefully this has inspired you and given you some ideas, or at least made you further curious about some of the origins of classic settings like the jungles of Chult or the Moengi Expanse in Pathfinder. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me via email at platu at member.fsf.org. You can also usually catch me in IRC as not Klaatu. I'm on the Freenode Network. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.